0: You're listening to the True Crime Fix Podcast with your host, Steve. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to our second episode of Season 4 and Episode 42 of the True Crime Fix Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show so far, then please make sure that you've subscribed on your chosen podcast directory and all the new episodes will automatically download for you upon release. Also, just a heads up, this is the second episode of a multi-parter, so if you've not heard part one yet, please go back and track down episode 41. Firstly, before we start, thank you so much for the incredible feedback that you've given me. I would also like to thank those of you who were affected by the events for getting in touch with me. I hope to get some of your experiences into the final part of this story in a few weeks' time. A brief recap as to where we are. Three men, 30-year-old Mohammed Sadiq Khan, 22-year-old Shazad Tanweer, and 18-year-old Haseeb Hussain, have travelled down from Leeds in Yorkshire to Luton in Bedfordshire. There, they picked up a fourth man, Jermaine Lindsay. They travelled on the Thameslink service from Luton into Kings Cross St Pancras, where they separated and took different trains. The first part focused solely on the incident between Liverpool Street and Algate train stations. Today we will be focusing on the remaining attacks which took place on the London Underground system. Just a reminder, the majority of this is based on the testimony of those that are there, so therefore some descriptions are extremely graphic. So without further ado, this is your True Crime Fix, I'm your host Steve, and this case has been dedicated to the memory of all those that lost their lives during the events that unfolded on the 7th of July, 2005. Muhammad Sadiq Khan had boarded the Circle Line train heading towards Hammersmith at Kings Cross Station. His journey would have taken him through Euston Square, Great Portland Street and Baker Street until arriving at Edgware Road. Despite how busy the train was, he had managed to get a seat by the time the train had pulled into Edgware Road Station. The next stop was Paddington, not unlike King's Cross, a station which allowed significant interchanges. The next moments are described by someone who is only known as Steve, who was working in Edgware House, a building which is linked to Edgware Road Station. At about 8.50, we heard a tremendous bang, which shook the whole building. We both, by which Steve is referring to himself and the duty station manager, only known as Derek, ran towards the windows to see if anything had happened outside. Derek immediately contacted the station supervisor, who was only known as Sue, to ask if everything was alright, and she replied you had better come down. Stephen Derrick made their way out of the building and down to platform level at Edgware Road Station. He continued, We could see the rear of the westbound train, which had stopped about 50 yards into the tunnel towards Paddington, with a lot of dust emanating from it. The underground staff were not waiting for the emergency services, and were already entering the tunnel, having switched off the traction current. Passengers were appearing from inside the tunnel, and staff were escorting them off the tracks and onto the platform via a ramp. The brave station staff were pulling together to get commuters out of the station as quickly as possible. Steve continued... I immediately telephoned the network control centre to tell them what was happening and that ambulances would be needed. I then heard about Liverpool Street's incident and immediately knew what we were dealing with. So you can visualise what a circle line carriage looks like. There is a bench of four seats on either side of the tube carriage. Then there are a set of double doors either side then a bench of four seats and a double doors, then a gap down the middle in between the seats where passengers often stand, especially during rush hour. Eyewitness testimony from the other passengers described that as the train was pulling out of the station, there was a large number of people standing, making their way to sit down. Laura Webb was the closest to Khan when the bomb detonated. Laura Susan Webb was born on the 12th of October 1975, in Kingston-upon-Thames in Surrey. She was the youngest born to parents Hazel and George, with two older brothers, Robert and David, to dote over her, and she had a happy childhood. Laura attended Robin Hood Infant and Primary School, followed by Coombe Girls School in Kingston, and then Esher College for her A-Levels. She went to Nottingham Trent University for what her mother described as a hectic three years of work, play, and making yet more lifelong friendships. There, she took a degree in humanities, majoring in sociology, psychology, and media studies. After graduation, she and three friends went backpacking in Southeast Asia, visiting Thailand, Laos, Vietnam. India and Nepal. Back in the UK, she met her boyfriend Chris Driver whilst working as a runner with a television production company. They decided to go travelling for a year in December 2000, visiting Argentina, Thailand and Australia, eventually working in Sydney for five months. Laura left the home in Islington that she shared with her boyfriend Chris On the morning of the 7th of July. She was heading to her job as a personal assistant in the advertising agency DDB Europe whose offices were based in Paddington. Although Laura survived the initial blast and a number of passengers tried in vain to save her, she died shortly after. Again unfortunately, as with many of the past incidences, and a lot of the forthcoming obituaries. Her family would not have her passing confirmed until nearly a week later. The closest survivor to the blast was miraculously sitting almost opposite the bomber. Catherine Alwafi gave her harrowing evidence to the subsequent inquest, but it will give you a better idea of what it was like to experience the blast. I had a job interview at 945 that day in the South Kensington area, so I set off in good time. My intentions that morning were to get the Bakerloo line to Baker Street and then change onto the Circle Line and take the Tube to South Kensington. This is not the obvious route to take. The shortest way would be to take the Bakerloo line and change at Paddington. However, I used to take my son to school in South Kensington and we used to change at Paddington. Paddington was always really busy and it was a struggle to get a seat at that time in the morning. So I got the tube from Warwick Avenue to Baker Street. I then waited on the platform for the Circle Line train to arrive. The platform was fairly busy. The train pulled up and I got on to the second carriage from the front, through the middle set of double doors. I then turned right, and then sat on the right-hand side with my back towards the station platform. I can remember that once I sat down, all the seats were taken, and that the carriage was fairly busy, but not packed. I did not look at anybody in the carriage, I just started to read my book. I can then recall sitting next to a lady, to my left, who was wearing Clinique perfume. I can only remember that she was white and in her thirties. I cannot remember stopping at Edgware Road, I can only assume that we did, and I cannot recall it. All of a sudden, I heard a very loud bang coming from my left, followed by a big flash. The carriage went into complete darkness and I could hear people screaming. I immediately thought that the train had crashed. I can remember a strong smell of burning and having difficulty breathing. I will remember the smell of the smoke forever. Some of the lights came back on and it was total chaos inside of the carriage. I was sitting halfway on my seat with my legs sort of crossed around me. Somebody was laid over my legs. The lady to my left was not moving and she had blood spouting from her. I could see that the blood from this lady was saturating my clothing down the left hand side. I did not even think I was injured. I can remember just thinking, I want to get off this carriage to go home and see my son. Once the lights came on, I could see glass and debris everywhere. I was shocked to see a large hole in the carriage floor, approximately five feet away from me, in the direction from where the initial bang had come. At this point, I started to think that we had not been involved in a crash, but a bomb of some sort had gone off. The lady to my left was still not moving or making any noise. As I managed to get up, I touched her neck. I cannot remember if she was alive or not. I felt guilty as I moved away from the lady. I said sorry to her, but she did not reply. I do remember a distinctive Australian male voice inside the carriage. He may have assisted me in moving out of the carriage. I moved to my right and into the adjoining carriage, away from the direction of the hole in the floor and the carnage around me. I was led down a ladder onto the tracks. I was petrified that another bomb was going to go off. It was very, very dark on the tracks. Many of the other passengers were crying and moving along the track very slowly. Luckily, I still had my handbag positioned over my chest and around my neck. I was also still carrying my jacket. The only thing that I lost was one of my shoes. I eventually arrived at the platform back at Edgware Road Station. I could see that many of the passengers were injured and covered in blood. I had a small cut on the underneath of my left arm, and a small cut on my left calf. I can recall it taking ages to go up some stairs. We then had to go through the ticket barriers one by one. Once outside, I saw a number of ambulance staff and police officers. I did not want to get in the way as other people were more seriously injured than myself. A number of staff from a Marks and Spencers store nearby had come out onto the street and were helping the injured. I was handed a man's jumper by a female member of staff as I was cold and shaking. I tried to use my mobile phone but I could not get any connection. I therefore walked home. I do not know how long it took me or which way I went. Nobody was home and I collapsed in the hallway and just curled up. It is quite possible that based on the layout drawn up by the Metropolitan Police, that the lady that Catherine refers to in her account is Laura Webb. The next closest person to the explosion was Jonathan Downey. Jonathan was born in Corby, Northamptonshire, on the 15th of March 1971. He met his future wife, Veronica, when they were still both teenagers. They studied business and finance together at Tresham College in Kettering, Northamptonshire, and married in 1999. He worked in the payroll department at Corby Borough Council, before moving to a similar job at Kensington and Chelsea Council in 2001. In 2003, the family moved to Milton Keynes in Buckinghamshire to make their commute into London easier. Jonathan's wife described how he was a massive fan of Liverpool Football Club and that he was a big joker who enjoyed winding up his friends. She also said, John was very cerebral. He was very conscious of those less fortunate than himself. John was a good listener and a good friend to people in need. He was a rock to me when I was going through a difficult time at work. On that morning, Jonathan and his wife took the train into London Euston from Milton Keynes as they always did, and they would then go their separate ways after a goodbye kiss. Jonathan died instantly with the blast his wife said afterwards. Ironically, John used to pick up a packet of cigarettes and announce, these will never kill me. He was right. Daniel Biddle was standing next to Jonathan when the bomb exploded. By the time he got to Edgware Road Station, he was already having one of those mornings. He had a blinding migraine and nearly called in sick. As a result, he left an hour later than normal. When he arrived at his local station at Romford in Essex, the ticket machines were down, so he had to queue for a customer service window. Then his train was delayed into Liverpool Street. But this calamitous morning did not stop there. He was supposed to get off at Baker Street, where he would get a connecting train to Wembley Central on the Bakerloo line. But he was typing out a text message into his phone and completely missed his stop. To be fair, we have all done that. My excuse is that I'm usually asleep. Daniel decided that rather than getting off at Edgware Road and get the train back one stop, he would look for an alternative route. Looking at the tube map which was situated above the double exit doors, he saw that he could make the same connection from Paddington So decided to stay on the train, and stay standing for that extra stop. Like I said in the intro of last week's episode, there are ways that you are supposed to be somewhere, and that for some reason you miss it. Then there is, for all intents and purposes, an error which results in changes to your way of life forever. Daniel said at the subsequent inquest, The train pulled out Vegware Road Station. I looked at the tube map, which was above the adjacent doors to where I was standing. He then referred to a man that he had noticed with a rucksack on his lap. The train entered the tube tunnel. As I looked around, he looked up. I just saw a quick movement. Then there was just a big white flash, and the kind of noise that you get when you tune a radio in. That kind of white noise. I just felt like the carriage I was standing in just expanded at such a vast rate and then contracted so quickly. With that, it blew me off my feet and threw the carriage doors into the tunnel. Before he set the device off, he looked up and along the carriage and then just looked down. He didn't say anything and he didn't shout anything that I can remember hearing. He just put his head down, moved his arm, and the next thing I'm outside of the train. Once I'd hit the floor, I had quite a lot of metal on top of me. It was very dark and very dusty. My initial thought was, Jesus Christ, the doors have given way and I've fallen outside the train. It was then that I tried to move, but I couldn't. As the dust and smoke settled, the noises started, and that was when I realized something bad had happened. I can remember a strange sensation as I was blown off of my feet. When I hit my head, it must have knocked me out for a split second, because my next recollection was laying on the rocks in the crawl space between the tunnel wall and the track. I tried to move so I lifted my arms up. I had quite a big piece of metal, I don't know if it was one of the side panels or one of the doors across my lower limbs and up to my chest. I pulled my arms out from underneath it and there was a bluish flame on both my arms and my hands. It was like a flash flame, it just went all over my body and went out. I didn't do anything just looked at it and thought, fucking hell, I'm on fire. I was on the floor and I could see under the carriages where the train had moved along. I saw two bodies on the floor on the other side of the train from where I was. There was a body about two feet away from me as I was lying on the floor. From where I was laying, it looked like one body had basically gone through the floor of the train. And then there was another body. It looked like it was away from the carriage between the two trains. I was terrified seeing what I'd seen. I thought I was going to die. So I was just screaming as loud as I could to get any help. There was, obviously, a lot of noise in the tunnel. I just kept shouting, For God's sake, somebody get me out of here. Somebody help. Then a voice shouted back, asked me my name and he then shouted back that his name was Adrian. Within a very short space of time, Adrian was with me and then another man whose name was Lee appeared. Adrian told Lee to sit behind where my head was. Adrian then lifted the doors off of my body so that he could see what damage had been done. I just remember Adrian saying to me, hold Lee's hand. I said, why's that? And he said, because this is going to fucking hurt. My original recollection was that it had taken one of my legs clean off and smashed up the other one. I later found out that when I hit the floor, my left leg had been blown clean off and that my right leg had been blown around at 180 degrees and shattered all the bones in my shins and feet. I had no feelings in my legs whatsoever. So when Adrian said that this was going to hurt, I just gripped Lee's hands but didn't feel anything. Just a quick side note, Daniel still has a 20 pence piece embedded in his thigh bone, and his house keys had to be removed from his thigh by surgeons at St Mary's Hospital in Paddington. As I think that you've got a good idea as to what happened at Edgware Road, now I'm going to pay tribute to the remaining victims of the blast. Colin Morley was born in Coulsdon, Surrey on the 5th of March 1953. When he was 11, he moved with his parents Hilary and Bill, sister Gillian and brother Brian to Leeds due to his father's work in the civil service they relocated to Liverpool when he was 15, where he took his A-levels a year early. He studied politics, philosophy and economics at the London School of Economics and was described as exceptionally bright throughout his academic career. Colin was survived by his wife Roz, and three sons, Gavin, Oliver and Jake. The couple had met when they were just 19 introduced by a mutual friend while they were both students, and they got married in 1977. His approach to creating advertising campaigns took him around the globe, working for companies such as the milling company Spillers, breakfast companies Quaker Oats and Weetabix, as well as telecommunications companies One to One and Vodafone. He spent three years at Vodafone, firstly in their global team in Ireland, and then as their interim UK marketing director. The award-winning one-to-one campaign, which asked, who would you like to have a one-to-one with, was created by Colin. The most poignant one was from 1998, where Arsenal striker Ian Wright picked Martin Luther King. During the commercial, Right was added to the historic footage of the civil rights movements of the 1960s, for example being shown on the bus with Rosa Parks. It was a very powerful and memorable advert. Colin was standing within the blast zone and was believed to have died immediately. The fourth victim was Jennifer Nicholson. Jennifer was born in Bristol on the 17th of October 1980, the first child of Greg and Julie Nicholson. Her father worked for British Aerospace, whilst her mother was the vicar of St. Aidan's with St. George Church in Bristol. Her mother remembered that within weeks of her birth, Jennifer had a big smile, laughing eyes and a loud chuckle, features which would soon become a mark of her personality she also had a sunny, sociable nature. Jennifer had a sister, Elizabeth, and a brother, Thomas. From an early age, Jennifer loved the arts, especially music and literature. As a small child, she was rarely seen without a book in her hand or song on her lips, her mother Julie said in a statement at the inquests. Whether singing in a church choir being part of a large festival chorus or raucously belting out diva style with her sisters and friends, Jenny simply loved all manner of making music. One of her favourite musical memories was harmonising with an ensemble of university friends as they celebrated a May Day dawn on the hill above the town of Reading. Jennifer had been an active member of Hawfield Parish Church in Bristol where she devoted much of her time to music and drama. She went on to study music and English at Reading University where she pursued her love of performing before returning to her home city of Bristol to complete a master's degree in advanced musical studies. She settled down in Reading with her boyfriend James who she had met during her first term at university. The couple's relationship had advanced to the stage where they planned to marry and have children. When she died, she was on the cusp of a career, formulating plans for the future, including a PhD, her mother told the inquests. She was travelling to work at the offices of Rheingold Publishing in Holborn, where she was an advertising sales executive. Jennifer did not usually take the train which she boarded on that day. Problems on her usual line led her to take the circle line instead. The inquest heard Jennifer was standing by the carriage doors when the bomb detonated and was blown out of the train onto the track. The evidence suggests that she was killed instantly. Michael Stanley Brewster who was known as Stan to his friends and family, was born on the 22nd of March 1953 and grew up in Derbyshire. He gained a civil engineering degree at Nottingham University and went on to work with the county council. His work included the award-winning Millennium Walkway in New Mills near the Peak District National Park, and bridges near Derby County's Pride Park football stadium. He cycled 12 miles to work every day and had been instrumental in getting cycle paths installed on the route. He and his wife had been planning to celebrate their silver wedding anniversary just three weeks after the bombings and had booked a cruise. Stan was on his way to a conference in West Kensington on the morning of the 7th of July. His family spent a week putting up posters around London in a vain effort to find him, before police confirmed that he had died on the Edgware Road tube train. At the inquests, teacher Timothy Coulson described Stan's final moments after the explosion at Edgware Road. Mr Coulson said that he had tried to help him but soon realised that he was dying, so he closed his eyes and said a prayer for him. David Fawkes was the sixth and final victim of the Edgware Road Blast. He was born on the 27th of March 1983 in Oldham, Greater Manchester. He attended Hume Grammar School in Manchester where he was a keen squash player and swimmer. He stayed on for the sixth form and then went to Oldham Business School before getting his first job. His father Graham said that he had learned to drive at 17. We bought David an old Volkswagen Polo and after that we saw very little of him at the weekends. At about that time David found girls or should I say they found him. David was six foot very handsome and had a car David joined the Guardian newspaper as a territory sales manager for the northwest which meant he was visiting local shops to promote the paper He was dating his girlfriend Stephanie Reed who was described as the love of his life David had traveled to London that day to meet a colleague The evidence indicated that he was killed instantly by the bomb blast. I'm going to allow a brief pause for thought before we go on to the next attack. When Jermaine Lindsay left the men who he had been travelling into London with at King's Cross, he made his way towards the Piccadilly line. He caught a southbound train towards Heathrow and boarded the first carriage. Firstly, with it being rush hour, the carriage was packed with commuters. But also, the train was due to serve some of London's greatest landmarks. Covent Garden, Leicester Square, Piccadilly Circus, Green Park for Buckingham Palace, Hyde Park Corner for Hyde Park, South Kensington for the Natural History Museum. So it was packed with tourists wanting to start their day of sightseeing early. The Metropolitan Police estimated that there was 135 people on that carriage when the bomb went off at 8.50am. As a statistic, if you take the bomber out of the equation, 12% of that carriage lost their life. Paul Glenister was one of the survivors on that day. Paul travelled in from High Wycombe that morning, but as I mentioned in episode 1, The normal route was not functioning, so he decided to go to the neighbouring town of Amersham and caught the Metropolitan Line train directly into King's Cross. According to his testimony at the subsequent inquest, he changed at King's Cross and got on the Piccadilly Line. When he got to the platform, the first train was far too full to board, so he decided to wait for the next one. I'll quote the rest. As the train pulled out of King's Cross Station, there was a pop noise, not really a bang or anything like that. Then everything just went grey, my ears were damaged, so all I could hear was ringing. When speaking about not being able to move after the blast, Paul said, I assumed that because it was so crowded, that people were on top of me there were people wriggling about, eventually I got up and that's when I used the pole to pull myself up. I knew straight away that I had an injury, I felt down to where my knee should have been and although the leg was still attached it was a sort of mush. So I knew that I had an injury so I got myself out from whatever was holding me down and I just pulled myself up, sat down and then sort of waited a couple of minutes. There was a lot of noise. There was a lot of people shouting and screaming. The only person I can sort of remember clearly speaking was a lady. I think she'd lost her foot, but I cannot be 100% sure about that. I think she was saying that she was going to tie a scarf around her. Paul proceeded to take off his belt, and use it as a tourniquet around his leg before waiting for help. The fatality list is quite significant, unfortunately, for this explosion, so I will now pay respects to those who have lost their lives. James Adams was born on the 6th of October 1972 in Chester, in the county of Cheshire. He was residing in Breton. An area to the northwest of Peterborough at the time of the explosion. He was a member of the Breton Baptist Church, where he had been deacon for two years. He was working as a mortgage advisor and was on his way into the Strand for a meeting. He was an avid Manchester United fan and enjoyed Formula One. He called his mother from King's Cross to let her know that he had arrived safely and that he was just about to board the tube. He was so close to the site of the detonation, and it is believed that he was killed by the explosion. Among those who paid tribute was the Labour MP for Tottenham, David Lammy. They went to boarding school together at Peterborough King's School, where Mr Lammy was the head boy and James was a chorister. Mr. Lammy said, When people die, it is common to say that there was not a bad word to be said about them, but with James, that was absolutely the case. He was one of the nicest people I have ever known. He was charming, very polite and a strong Christian. His faith was important to him. His support for an orphanage project in southern India during his lifetime led to a building being erected and named in his memory after his death. Samantha Badham was born on the 2nd of October 1969, in Ledbury, Herefordshire. She went to Ledbury Primary School and John Macefield High School, where she was a head girl. She went on to Birmingham University to study history, and after graduating, she returned to Hereford, where she met her partner, Lee Harris. At the time, she was on the committee of Hereford Lads Club, and he was a teenager preparing for his Duke of Edinburgh Silver Award. Lee Harris was born on the 13th of November 1974, in the city of Hereford. After Lee found work in London as an architect, The couple moved in together in the Tottenham area of North London, but regularly returned to Ledbury to restore a house that they owned. On the morning of the 7th of July, Samantha had left her car at home and got the Tube to work with Lee. The change was due to Samantha having dinner plans in London's Soho district that evening with four friends. On the way to work though, They were both blown out of the carriage by the force of the explosion. Both Samantha and Lee were subsequently found on the tracks on the right-hand side of the train, next to where the fourth carriage had come to rest. Samantha was tended to and comforted by members of the emergency services. At about 10.20am, they removed her from the tracks and carried her back to Kings Cross Underground Station, and then up to the surface. She was given further medical treatment on the forecourt of Kings Cross Mainline Station, but died there at about 10.43am. Lee was tended to and comforted by members of the emergency services, and he was subsequently removed from the tracks and carried to a triage area at Kings Cross. At about 10.59am, He was put into an ambulance and taken to the Royal London Hospital with severe head injuries. He was placed into a coma for treatment, but subsequently succumbed to his injuries on the 15th of July 2005, the day before Samantha was formally identified. A joint funeral service was held at St Michael's Church in Ledbury on the 5th of August 2005. The hearses carrying both Samantha and Lee were driven side by side to and from the church. They were then laid to rest together, together forever. Philip Beer was born on the 27th of February 1983 in Barnet, Hertfordshire. He was residing in Boreham Wood was a hairstylist who worked at some of the most popular London salons. He was on his way to work in Knightsbridge and had caught the train into London with his friend Patrick Barnes. His sister Stacey had taken the men to Elstree and Boreham Wood Station, which took them straight into Kings Cross before boarding the Piccadilly Line train into Knightsbridge. Stacy told the inquest how she had texted her brother when she had heard about the bombs. Instead of a response from Philip, she received a distressed phone call back from Patrick saying that he had lost sight of Philip in the aftermath of the explosion. Philip's family and friends searched the hospitals for him until they received confirmation of their worst fears three days after the attacks. Philip had sustained severe injuries as a result of the explosion. He was comforted by fellow passengers, some of whom attempted first aid, but died at about 9.50am, very shortly after having been examined by the paramedics. Anna Brandt was born on the 26th of March 1964, in Poland. In 1981, she opened up and ran her own restaurant straight out of school. A couple of years later, she married Eric Brant, and in time they had two children, Hubert and Natalie. In 2002, after the restaurant closed, Anna moved to London, leaving her husband in Poland to look after her children. While in London, Anna shared a house with her brother Pavel and worked in a local bar before becoming a cleaner. Most of her earnings were sent back to Poland to help pay for her children's education. She was living in Wood Green, which is near Tottenham in North London, and boarded the Piccadilly Line train to go to work on the morning of the 7th of July. Anna was in the same carriage and was killed by the explosion. When she never turned up to work, Her brother Pavel commenced a desperate search for Anna. He spent several days searching for his sister, holding a picture of her for everyone to see. Police took his DNA sample and subsequently confirmed through a familial match that she had died. I take it I do not have to elaborate on that any further. Kieran Cassidy was born on the 27th of October 1982 at the Whittington Hospital near Archway in London. Kieran was brought up in a close-knit religious family in Finsbury Park, North London, along with his older sister Lisa. Together they had a large extended family of 25 aunts, 16 uncles and 42 cousins, all living in Ireland. Kieran attended the nearby Christ the King Roman Catholic Primary School in Islington before starting at the St Thomas More Roman Catholic Secondary School in Wood Green. Kieran completed his education by achieving a GMVQ in Leisure and Tourism at the Sixth Form College based at La St Union School in Highgate. He was a massive fan of Arsenal Football Club. And as a child, he dreamed of playing for the team, and he was often at Highbury to cheer them on on a Saturday afternoon. Kieran was working for a company in Chancery Lane called Bridge & Co., a family-run business providing quality print services. He was on his way to work when he was killed in the explosion. Elizabeth Daplin was born on the 14th of October 1978 in the city of Leicester. Her family moved to Rochester in Kent when Elizabeth was a young child, and she spent her school life in Kent. After an art foundation course, she studied fine art at Oxford University. Graduating with a two-one, she set herself the difficult task of making a living in the art publishing world. In 2002, she moved to London and worked in a number of administrative roles before joining the University College Hospital in the Neuroradiology Department. She was living in Highgate with her partner Rob and they parted ways at King's Cross, Elizabeth heading for the Piccadilly Line. Unfortunately, she was killed in the explosion. Arthur Frederick was born on the 4th of October 1944, in the Caribbean island of Grenada. As a young man, he moved to the island of Montserrat, a British overseas territory based in the Caribbean. An island famous for in July 1995, the dormant Sufri Hills volcano erupting suddenly. Mudflows reached the capital Plymouth, resulting in an exodus. He made his home there and established his career as a police officer. In 1997, Arthur retired after 31 years in the Royal Montserrat Police and moved to London. He settled in Seven Sisters, North London and took work as a museum security guard. Back in Montserrat, he was also a musical star, having had a hit on the island with the Calypso track, Signs of Christmas, which was recorded in 1965. Arthur was blown out of the train and killed by the explosion. His body was subsequently found on the tracks on the near side of the train, next to where the fourth carriage had come to rest. His body was returned to Grenada, where he was buried on the 29th of July 2005. Karolina Kluck was born on the 24th of November 1975 in Churzao, Poland. After failing to find work in her native Poland, Karolina had followed her twin sister Magda to London in 2002. She soon met Richard Deere, and the two started a relationship which had started to blossom. The morning of the 7th of July 2005 was full of anticipation for Carolina. As she kissed Richard goodbye before leaving for work, they were both excited for the long weekend they had planned. That night, they were due to leave for Paris for a romantic break. Moments later, Carolina boarded the Piccadilly Line train at Finsbury Park station heading towards Russell Square where she worked as a receptionist at the Goodenough College. Carolina was blown out of the train and killed by the explosion. Her body was subsequently found on the tracks on the near side of the train, next to where the fourth carriage had come to rest. When news of the attacks reached her boyfriend, he started to worry and rang her work, only to find out that she had failed to arrive. Days of searching ensued until police confirmed her death. A day which should have ended so perfectly, ended up in misery. Gamzi Guneral was born on the 4th of June 1981 in Istanbul, Turkey. She had an artistic streak, with her paintings being exhibited from a young age. She also played volleyball for a local club. Music was another interest and she learned to play the mandolin, recorder and keyboard. Her hard work at school paid off when she was accepted at the University of Marmara in Istanbul to study finance. She graduated in 2003 as an actuary, a profession where a person deals with the measurement and management of risk and uncertainty in business. Ultimately, she went on to join Gisad, Turkey's largest textile export company. While with the company, Gamzi decided to take a year's break to go to London to improve her English. She took up a part-time job in a London fashion store to practice her spoken English. Gamzi left her aunt's house in the Totteridge area of North London. On the morning of the 7th of July 2005. She died on the way to her language college in Hammersmith when she was killed by the initial explosion. Jill Hicks was a survivor of the Russell Street attack. Jill was a high-flying professional and had moved from Adelaide in Australia to London. She said at the subsequent inquest My last thoughts before the explosion were, I wish this train would hurry up, because I was uncharacteristically late for work. Jill mentioned in other interviews that she was always in the office by 7.30am, and on this day she was running late. She continued, I would say it would have been seconds as we took off, a click if that, there was no sound and everything went completely black. I thought I was having a heart attack. I could hear screams around me and thought that people were panicking over my death or me dying. But it was only when I opened my eyes and realised that the blackness was indeed everywhere. That it wasn't just me, hearing everybody else scream. We were all in this together. It was a shared experience and strangely I found that comforting for moments that followed. Jill had lost both her legs in the blast and recalled fellow passengers doing what they could to assist the wounded. She referred to a woman by the name of Alison, ripping her scarf in half and tying it around Jill's legs to stem the blood flow. This after another man had lifted her up and put her onto a spare seat. Paul Mitchell was severely injured in the explosion. Paul, who was on his way to work at Regent Street, had almost boarded the previous train and even stepped onto the carriage, but decided against it because the train was so full. There was complete and utter pandemonium. There was people screaming and I thought my hair was on fire. I had my eyes closed out of sheer terror, he said. He told the subsequent inquest, how he'd become trapped under metal debris with a seriously damaged leg and intertwined with other people. Paul said that he only survived because of the efforts of a fellow passenger, Julie Groon, who helped him tie a tourniquet around his damaged leg using her coat and a sanitary towel. He said, It undoubtedly saved my life but it was only as he was being carried from the carriage on a stretcher about an hour later that he realised that his ring was missing. He said, I was extremely worried that I had lost my wedding ring at the time. I thought my wife would never forgive me. But luckily, a police crime scene officer found the ring in the tunnel during the investigation and returned it to Paul a fortnight later. Julie Gruen wept as she recalled what happened on that day, and how she was fearing for her life as a huge fireball tore through the carriage, blowing her backwards. She said, I remember looking at it, then just thinking, you know, next thing I'll be gone. Julia boarded the tube train at Finsbury Park, and was listening to her iPod when Lindsay detonated his bomb. Recalling the moments immediately after, she said, I could sort of make out somebody on the floor and thought that it was just some kind of horror film. Julie was one of the passengers who attempted to keep Philip Beer alive by performing first aid. Paul Mitchell had landed on top of him, but neither at the time were able to move due to their injuries. Unless you've been on the Piccadilly line during rush hour, you would not realise how just the crush is enough to induce an anxiety attack. Julie said that it wasn't until about 45 minutes later, a fireman broke down the door between the first and second carriages, so that the trapped passengers could escape. She emerged from the tunnel at Kings Cross Station, and headed for the surface with fellow survivor Matthew Brooks, who had part of his face blown away by the blast. As Julie neared ground level on an escalator, she was shocked to see that tube users were still heading down towards the underground lines, oblivious to what had happened. She said, There were still commuters going down the other side of the escalator and down the steps, unaware of what had happened. They were looking at Matthew and myself, they were seeing us for the first time and their faces were just in disbelief. They had no idea what had just happened. The twelfth victim of the Piccadilly Lion bomb was Ojira Ikigwu, who was born on the 22nd of November 1948 in Nigeria. Her high school education was interrupted by the three-year Nigerian civil war. In 1969, just before the war was over, she married Dr. Okorafor Akigwu, and went on to have three children. The young family moved to England in 1976, settling in Luton, and Ojera was keen to further her education. Over the next two decades, she studied social work, but also returned to Nigeria for a spell where she opened up her own hair salon, Which she ran for nine years. By 2000, she had achieved a master's degree in social work from Kingston University. The following year, she joined Hounslow Social Services and was based in the local community working with adults with learning difficulties at the Berkeley Centre out of Heston, Middlesex. She is the second of our victims to travel down to the capital with her eventual killer. Ogera caught the train into King's Cross St Pancras from Luton before boarding the Piccadilly Line train. Sorry to all of you listening, but the next bit is a little bit graphic. Ogera was so close to the blast that she lost all four of her limbs and was declared dead at the scene. Emily Jenkins was born on the 24th of July 1980 at Hammersmith Hospital in London. At school, she showed signs of the caring woman she was going to become, often befriending the lame ducks of the class. She started ballet classes and continued to dance until she was 18, passing all her exams with high grades. She attended Surbiton High in South West London, where she did really well academically until A-levels, when her family stated her rebellious streak took over. The following year, she took a gap year in South America, learning to speak Spanish as well as learning to experience the less luxurious accommodation, also learning to emotionally support her group. She tried university but only lasted a term before dropping out. Her next stop was Salamanca in West Spain. She stayed there for a year before heading to Melbourne, Australia, with no plans in place. On returning to the UK, she tried to settle in Cornwall, but eventually found work at Arcadis AYH, who were a project management company in London. A company who in 1987 had been responsible for the design of London City Airport. She rose within the company, soon becoming personal assistant to her boss and living in a flat in Peckham. Emily was killed in the initial explosion. Adrian Johnson was born on the 9th of May 1968, in Sutton in Ashfield, in the county of Nottinghamshire. Adrian grew up in Skegby, which was also in Nottinghamshire, a short distance west of the town of Mansfield. He attended St Andrews Primary School before going to Quarrydale Comprehensive, where he met his future wife Catherine at the age of fifteen. The couple married in nineteen ninety one and they had two children, Christopher and Rebecca. A sports enthusiast, He enjoyed golf as well as playing hockey at county level and was a lifelong supporter of Mansfield Town Football Club. Adrian was always a gentle and kind soul and little did we know our lives would be somewhat tested during the next few years, Catherine said. I was diagnosed with a malignant melanoma in late 2000 which unfortunately spread to my lymph glands. Not only was this a physical challenge for Adrian as he took on my role whilst I was in and out of hospital, but it was an emotional rollercoaster for him, looking after a very young family and trying to come to terms with the potential threat of being a single parent. Adrian's job was a product technical manager for the fashion company Burberry. It was a job that took him all over Europe, and he generally spent three weeks out of four in Italy, with the remaining week in London at the company's base in Haymarket. In the week of the bombings, however, he broke with routine and left his London hotel to see his family in Nottinghamshire. He was killed in the explosion whilst on the way back to the office. Catherine said following his passing, It was so ironic that we would lose Adrian. We were saving a bottle of champagne to celebrate my five year milestone in 2006, but I could not bring myself to drink it alone. Helen Jones was born on the 13th of February 1977 in Scotland, in a village four and a half miles west of the town of Lockerbie. The town itself was no stranger to tragedies, with the 1988 Pan Am Flight 103 disaster. She was described as being a brilliant scholar and she began studying divinity at Aberdeen University, aged just 16. She went on to achieve a first-class honours degree. After this, she took a gap year to work with Glasgow City Mission, a charity which worked with the city's drug addicts, prostitutes and homeless. During the gap year, she also went to the US city of Denver to work for a sister organisation on exchange. She felt though that her calling was the Church of Scotland ministry. Feeling that she wanted some real life experiences before seeking selection, she trained as a chartered accountant in 1998 with Price Waterhouse Coopers in Glasgow. There she was known as Sherlock Jones due to her ability to sniff out accountancy errors. In 2002, she moved to London and took up work in the Strategic and Commercial Intelligence Department with the firm KPMG, then moved to Phoenix Equity Partners, a job that she absolutely adored. She lived in Holloway, North London, where she bought a flat in June 2005 two weeks before that fatal journey. She died in the initial blast. Susan Levy was born on the 17th of December 1951 in London. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of information about Susan's upbringing, but she was residing in Hertfordshire at the time and was getting on the Piccadilly Line train to work with her son. Her son got off the train at Finsbury Park And Susan carried on to work. Susan Levy sustained severe injuries as a result of the explosion. Following the arrival of emergency medical teams, she was tended to and comforted on the train, and then she was carried to King's Cross Underground Station, where she received further treatment. She was taken to the surface, where she was put into an ambulance and taken to the Royal London Hospital. She received further treatment there, but died later the same day, at about 27 minutes past one in the afternoon. It was suggested at the inquest that the lacerations on her leg led to significant blood loss and made her weak. One paramedic said that if they had been able to apply a tourniquet sooner, she may have survived. Shelley Mather was born on the 27th of January 1979 in Auckland, New Zealand. As a child growing up in Auckland, Shelley loved books and puzzles. Later in life, she developed a passion for indoor cricket and played in a league. She left New Zealand in 2002 after saving up for a tour of Europe. She enjoyed the experience so much that she decided to become a tour guide and completed her training in 2004. She last visited New Zealand in March 2005 to be a bridesmaid at the wedding of her best friend Jackie Riley before attending the Glastonbury Festival in June. Shelley was in the same carriage as the bomb and sustained serious injuries as a result of the explosion. She was comforted by fellow passengers and following the arrival of emergency medical teams received medical treatment at the scene. Members of the emergency services carried her out of the front of the train with the intention of evacuating her to Russell Square Underground Station but she died shortly after being taken out of the train at about 10.30am. As with many of the victims though it was nearly a week before our family was given the dreadful news. Michael Matsushita was born on the 25th of May 1968 in Vietnam. Michael's biological father was a South Vietnamese soldier and died during the Vietnam War. His mother was also Vietnamese and met U.S. aid worker David Matsushita who adopted Michael and they moved to New York after the war. Michael was in New York working for a bank on 9-11, and shortly after he quit his job and went travelling. Michael went to visit Latin America, Africa, Australia, Cambodia and finally Vietnam, the country his parents had fled to escape the communist rule. It was during the final 18 months of his travels when he worked as a tour guide for intrepid travel in Cambodia and Vietnam that he met and fell in love with English colleague Rosie Cowan. When her visa ran out, she returned to London in January 2005 but continued to work for intrepid travel. Michael had promised to follow her and when he arrived in May 2005, they found a place to live together in Islington, London. They continued their love of travelling and went to Holland and Spain together before Michael started a new job in IT recruitment. Michael was killed in the explosion, and once again, without going into too much detail, he had to be identified by documents found on his body. James Mays was born on the 16th of April 1977 in London. He went on to achieve a politics degree from Warwick University and spent a year in the civil service. James was appointed as a trainee analyst by the Health Commission in 2002. Again, not a lot is known about his upbringing. On a normal morning... He would not have been on the Piccadilly line train, but on the 7th of July 2005, he was on his way to a seminar in Holborn. James was killed in the explosion. Benaz Muzaka was born on the 18th of February 1957 in Shiraz, Iran. She studied at Tehran University, where she met her husband Nadir. The couple moved to Finchley in London in 1992. On the 7th of July, she was en route to Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital, where she worked as a biomedical officer. Benaz was killed instantly when the bomb exploded. Michaela Otto was born on the 18th of December 1958 in Romania. She moved to London in 1984, following in the footsteps of her sister. Michaela was raised in the teachings of the Christian Orthodox Church and lived in Mill Hill, North London, as part of a close-knit, multi-faith family. After her brief marriage broke down in 1986, she and her mother, Eleanor Dragonescu, who was 78 years old at the time, moved in with Michaela's sister, Dana, her Jewish husband, Matthew, and their two teenage children, Leah and Michael. Michaela had worked full-time as a sales assistant at Burberry in Regent Street, but in 1988, she took an office job with a publishing department in Highbury, North London. Her family said she loved the job, earned a good salary and got on well with her colleagues. Michaela already spoke French and her native Romanian, but the company paid for her to learn Italian. She left the UK for two years to study at the UCLA Dental Technology School in Los Angeles, and graduated with honours. According to the Guardian newspaper, she was one of only four people in her class to achieve that grade, but decided not to stay on and she returned to her family in London in June 2004. Twice a week she met with friends to play poker, but her favourite way to pass a few hours was venturing into the glitzy shops of Regent Street and the stylish boutiques of Bond Street. That fondness for the finer things in life was evident on the morning of the 7th of July when Michaela set off for her job as a dental technician in Knightsbridge, carrying her beloved Louis Vuitton handbag. She relied on the Northern Line for her daily commute, but with delays affecting the branch of the line that she usually used, she was forced to switch to the Piccadilly Line. Michaela was blown out of the carriage and killed by the initial explosion. Her body was subsequently found on the tracks amongst the debris, on the offside of the train next to where the fourth carriage had come to rest. Atik Sharifi was born on the 1st of January 1981 in Kabul, Afghanistan. Atik had fled Afghanistan as a refugee and was one of only a few members of his family to escape death at the hands of the Taliban. He was now residing in Hounslow, West London, a few miles from London Heathrow Airport. Atik had been studying English at West Thames College in Isleworth since September 2002. He worked in a pizza takeaway in his spare time and used a portion of his wage to send money back to his younger sister, who was still in Afghanistan, as both of their parents had perished in the Kabul War. Atik was killed in the initial blast of the explosion. Ihab Slimani was born on the 19th of June 1981 in Lyon, France, and he was born with Tunisian ancestry. Ehab just completed an IT engineering degree from the University Institute of Technology near Grenoble. He wanted to improve his English, so decided to move to London for a bit and got himself a flat in Finsbury Park in North London and also got himself a job as a waiter in London's West End. His long-term ambitions were in computer programming and he intended to return to his studies in France in September. Ehab was on his way to work when he was blown out of the carriage and killed by the explosion. His body was subsequently found on the tracks on the near side of the train next to where the third carriage had come to rest. His body was formally identified after a week of his family looking for him. Christian Small was born on the 10th of February 1977 in London. Christian had just completed a trip to Africa where he was able to trace his heritage. As a result, he had added Najoya Diowara to his name, which meant strong in spirit. He was also a talented track athlete, with his chosen event being the 110 metre hurdles. In May 2005, he had just won a gold medal at the Middlesex County Games. On the 7th of July, he left his flat in Walthamstow, East London, at 8am, to begin his journey to work in Holborn where he worked in advertising sales but he never arrived. His route would have involved changing on the Piccadilly Line train either at Finsbury Park or King's Cross from the Victoria Line. He was killed in the explosion but like many of the victims was not formally identified for a week. Monica Suchoka was born on the 25th of April 1982 in Poland. She grew up in northern Poland where her mother was a primary school head teacher and her father worked for the local authority. After leaving school, she completed a master's degree at the Academy of Economics in Poznan. Monica went abroad in 2002 to study in Germany before in the summer of 2003, she travelled to the United States to study English. Just two and a half months before the blast, she had left for a new job in London. The job was due to last until October that year, after which she was going to decide whether to stay in London or return to Poland. Monica continued to indulge her love of music, after settling in to her new life in the city by playing the piano and joining a choir. She lived in Archway with two other Polish women who were friends from school and university. On the morning of the 7th of July, Monica was on her way to work at an accountancy firm in West Kensington. She was killed in the explosion. The last contact that she had with anybody was at 8.40am when she sent a text message to a colleague to say she was having problems on the Northern Line and would get a bus instead. Her death on the Piccadilly Line was confirmed, however, over a week later. Marla Triverdi was born on the 17th of August 1953. Marla was born and educated in Nairobi, Kenya. She had met her husband Ashok while she was a student in 1968. The couple traveled back and forth between the UK and Kenya before marrying in Britain in 1975. They returned to Kenya for four years, where Marla worked in a hospital X-ray department but came back to the UK in 1979, and in 1986 had their son, Crunel. She worked in St Thomas's Hospital until June 2001, and rose to be a pictures archiving and communications system manager. Then she moved to take up the same role at Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital. Marla too was killed in the explosion. The final victim of the Russell Square attack was Rochelle Chang-Foyen, who was born on the 3rd of November 1977 in Curepipe, Mauritius, where her father ran a corner shop and she was the eldest of three children. She studied at Our Lady High School before deciding against university and instead carved out a career in accountancy. She financed her studies herself and in 2000 moved to London to complete her ACCA qualification. A year later she was qualified and went on to join Mies Pearson Intertrust, a subsidiary of the Fortis Group. It was around this time that she met the man who had become her husband. In 2003, The couple moved into a terraced house in Wood Green and married the following year at Haringey Registry Office. By 2004, they were living in a flat in Mill Hill. Rochelle left her Mill Hill home in North London and found that signal failures were sending all Northern Line trains along the bank branch through King's Cross. She was heading to work in Piccadilly Circus, so disembarked at King's Cross to change lines. Rochelle was killed in the explosion. Like most of the victims on the Piccadilly line, it took over a week to identify her body. Her funeral service took place in her homeland of Mauritius in August 2005, and it was attended by the country's most senior statesmen. I appreciate everyone that this has been a really deep episode, hearing about the victims and hearing the graphic nature of the crimes. I guess you'll be thinking to yourself, hang on, I thought there was four people and I thought all the attacks were in sync. Well, my dear friends, they were actually not. The fourth attack did not happen until later. Haseeb Hussain was still alive in London at this point. At 8.55am, shortly after the first three blasts, Hussein walked out of Kings Cross Underground Station and on to the Euston Road. He spent the next five minutes attempting to call his three cohorts, where, for obvious reasons, none of these three calls connected. His demeanour over this period appeared relaxed and unhurried, At 9am, CCTV captured him walking back into Kings Cross St Pancras Station through the Boots Chemist, and then going into the WH Smith's newsagents on the station concourse. There, he only made one purchase, a 9-volt battery. Once again, he departed the St Pancras part of the station, and crossed York Way before entering the McDonald's, which is on the opposite corner, arriving at about 9.06. It is unclear whether he ordered any food or whether he just used the toilet, but he left the restaurant at about 9.15. By this time, the emergency services were arriving at all of the sites of the explosions. The roads around Kings Cross, which are off the main carriageway, are predominantly a one-way system, so if you wanted to go westbound by bus, it could be a five-minute walk to the nearest bus stop. The next time CCTV picks up Hussain, he is on the Grey's Inn Road, which is on the other side of the carriageway from the station. He is witnessed boarding the number 91 bus, a route which runs from Tottenham in North London to Trafalgar Square. His demeanour had now changed to being impatient and nervous. In future interviews with the authorities, he was described by passengers on that bus as rudely pushing past people. He alighted at Upper Woburn Place, a stop directly opposite Euston Station. He walked across to the bus station at Euston and went to bus stop D. At about 9.35am, the number 30 bus arrived. There were crowds of people who had been evacuated from the tube, all attempting to board buses as an alternative method of transport. They were all still in hope of somehow getting to work or continuing the rest of their city break. Still to come, we'll be looking at what happened on the number 30 bus with a C. Bussain. We'll be looking into the response on the day of the nation's leaders, and why London's police force was so thin on the ground. We'll be looking into the subsequent inquests, and what the intelligence services were already aware of. Who were the men that committed such a heinous attack and what motivated them? We'll be hearing about another plot which was foiled by the security services. We'll be looking into the death of Jean Charles de Menezes. We'll be looking into what happened with the first responders, as well as some positives that came out of the aftermath. So, as we come to the end of part two, I hope that you are learning things about the tragic events of that day that you were not aware of. As I said last time, please let me know what you think in case I think it's working and I end up losing everybody that normally listens to me. Please remember, if you enjoy the show or want to know more, please follow me on Twitter at TrueCrimeFixPod. That's at TrueCrimeFixpod. The podcast also has a Facebook page, True Crime Fix Podcast, but there's also a fan page, True Crime Fix Discussion. You can also visit the website, www.truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk Also a reminder that the podcast is on Patreon, so please visit www.patreon.com forward slash truecrimefixpodcast. I also have an Instagram account, so search True Crime Fix. Also, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, please contact me at truecrimefixpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. That's truecrimefixpodcast@gmail.com, at gmail.com. Or go through the Contact Us page on the website. Until next time, stay safe. Look after each other and live life to the fullest, because you never know who, or what, might be coming around the next corner. Take care everyone.